Amen. Uh, this morning we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 35 through 58. Um, and uh, but before we dive in there, I, I want to mention that Last week, Pastor Jason uh, got a chance to preach on was the middle part of chapter 15. Chapter 15 is, is very long, all the way to, to verse 58, and, uh, and very dense. There's a lot of good stuff in there, so we divided it into three uh, messages. I kind of did the first one, then Pastor Jason did last week, and, and then I'm back to, to the end of chapter 15 this week. But uh, the reason he, he preached last week is I was out of town. I was in Hawaii. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty great. Um, it was, it was pretty, uh, I'd never been there before. Um, I, I appreciate you saving the heat for when we got back, by the way. Uh, it's really, really nice of you. Um, I mean, the weather there is, is great. It's beautiful. It's awesome place. And, and one of the guides, somewhere we were, some tour guide or somebody said something like, um, told us that, that there are no, uh, no venomous, 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 snakes or spiders on the, uh, uh, anywhere. They don't have them. They don't have any venomous, venomous snakes, which I was like, wow, that's weird. And, and he, uh, and so then he said like, you know, so yeah, if your kids go and you, you go out, uh, you know, hiking in, in through the jungle or whatever, you don't have to worry about that. I was like, yeah, that's, that's like interesting, like change, you know, especially uh, coming from rattlesnake country right here that like, that just to not have that that worry is gone. That's interesting. And, and it made me realize that, like, I, I think that part of, sometimes the way we seek out these, like, experiences, these places that are like that or, or other places where it can be kind of uh, idyllic and, and, and seems that we get a little bit of distance from the curse. Right? You get a little bit of distance there. Right? The venomous, venomous snakes and, and spiders, that's, that's all a result of the fall, right? So the fact that hey, you're in this place, this beautiful, great weather, and it's removed from that is like a little bit of distance, a little closer to God's original creation intent. But I had this interesting encounter because it, it certainly still is a broken place. And, and I, I was at the grocery store there, and I'm standing in line behind these two guys, and it's just two guys by themselves, and uh, and they, they weren't there together, but they start talking because the line was uh, very long to show you that it's, it's not perfect. It's, it's a significant line in this grocery store. And, and these, uh, these two guys are talking, and, and they're, one of them saying, you know, are you from here? Where do you live? And they're saying, oh, I'm visiting. I'm from, you know, wherever, Ohio or something like that. And, and the other guy's like, yeah, I just, I just moved here. And I'm looking for a place to live. Like right, right now, I'm just staying in this like camp kind of area down, down there. Like, like he just moved to Hawaii without a plan, which is like, that's interesting. Um, and he's like, oh, I'm just staying in the, the campground down there. And he's like, yeah, it's still paradise, but there's like people doing drugs and stuff down there. It's no good. And, and the other guy was like, oh, really? Where, where is it? So it's just like, not great. <laughs> not great, but but also just that that sentence that the, the guy said kind of stuck with me. Where he said, you know, it's it's still paradise, but it's still paradise, but and and it made me think about the fact that just someday we're not going to have to say that, right? Because that's all we can have here and now, right? Is like it's paradise, but right? It's it's close to perfect, but 
it's still not perfect. And, and someday we're going to get to a place where we don't have to say that it truly will be paradise. We're going to be talking about that today as we continue to look at Paul's arguments for the resurrection in verses 35 through 49 of chapter 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, and there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ, differs from star in, glor- in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Paul's been discussing the resurrection really since the beginning of chapter 15. This is his, his biggest concern for the Corinthians is that they've gotten this false doctrine of the resurrection. They've got a false idea of how it should work, that there's heresy that's seeped into the Corinthian church and is becoming popular there. That's his, most high, that's his highest concern, and there's been some serious things that he's covered, right? The divisions in the church, sexual immorality, lawsuits between the believers, whether or not they're going to eat food offered to idols, spiritual gifts, on and on. There's all these things that he's been dealing with that are serious problems, but a false doctrine of the resurrection had crept into the church, and this is the most concerning thing for Paul. We've already looked at the first couple parts of his arguments last two Sundays. We've seen that that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is critical to the validity and veracity of the gospel, right? That Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of those who have died. So Paul's going to answer two questions that the Corinthians have. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? They want to know, what is it going to be like? If this is happening, what is it going to be like? And Paul starts by using an agricultural analogy that it's like a seed. Right? He says a seed is placed on the ground and it dies in order for that plant to be to grow. And that seed really has very little resemblance to the plant that comes. Right? If you think about, about what seeds are like and then what plants are like, they're totally different things. Right, if you look at what a seed is, it's you know, usually a small thing. It's, it's, really, it's usually brown or, or white. 
black maybe. And then it grows this green plant. I mean, it's a totally different thing, but that has to die in order for the plant to live, right? We don't nearly think of a seed dying, but that is, would be a way to say it, right? That that seed no longer exists in its current form in order for the plant to grow. Or if you've ever done those, you know, uh, experiments where you take the seeds and you put them on a wet paper towel and put it in a Ziploc baggie and put it in the window. You know, you remember first grade, right? Right. And, and you can see that coming out and it's like that, that seed is maybe there's something of it still there, but it is really gone in comparison to the plant that has come. And Paul's analogy is pretty clear here, right? He's saying that the seed is planted in the ground much like human beings are buried in the ground when they die. He also looks at creation and sees that there are different kinds of flesh, right? Even without the the biological understanding that we have today, Paul can clearly see just from looking at the world that there's different kinds of flesh that's happening here, right? There's birds, there's fish, there's reptiles, there's you know, human beings, there's mammals, there's all these different kinds of things. And he can clearly, clearly see it even without like our modern like taxonomy, right? That these things are different. They're made up of different things. And he uses that as an analogy for the fact that we will have a different kind of body when we are resurrected. What are the differences between heavenly and earthly bodies? He lays them out. He says that the, the earthly is perishable, it's dishonorable, it's weak, it's natural. Heavenly bodies are imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. Right? That, this is the, the truth that he's finding, that we're finding here. That the, this is, is just the, the nature of things, right? That we are perishable. We are, we are fading away. We are breaking down. Right? I was looking, I was trying to find my Best Buy date that I couldn't find it, but I'm pretty sure it's well past already, right? That, that it's, it's, it's breaking down, right? And eventually all of us have an expiration date. We are perishable. We will die. Heavenly bodies will not be like that. We'll be imperishable. We'll be glorious. We'll be powerful, spiritual. Paul also breaks down the prototypes for these two things, right? He, he talks about the, the first Adam versus the last Adam, like com- comparing the two. What is the first Adam like? What is the last Adam like? The, the first Adam is, you know, the, the Adam that we think of, right? That's Adam of Garden of Eden fame. Infamy, maybe? Right, that, that's the first Adam. The second Adam or the last Adam is Jesus, or that he is pictured as the last Adam. And he says that the first Adam became a living being, the second Adam became a life-giving being. Paul's conclusion in verse 49 is that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Where he's saying in the same way that we are like that first Adam and that he was the prototype for all human beings. He had a body like we have bodies that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, his body after he's risen from the grave is what our resurrected bodies will be like. That's what Paul's saying here. And we bore that image and then we're going to bear this image. 
that Jesus' resurrected body is something that we should be able to look forward to and say that's what our resurrected bodies will be like. So let's look at it. Let's break it down and say what was Jesus' resurrected body like? What do we know about Jesus' resurrected body? Well, first off, we know that it was physical. Right? We know it was a physical body, something you could touch, something you could interact with. Thomas does this in, in John chapter 20 when he feels the wounds, right? And, and there's nothing to say that he didn't have the experience of touching another human body. When Jesus says, touch, touch my wounds, feel it. And he touches, it's, it's, he doesn't say, oh yeah, my hand went right through. Or he doesn't even say like, oh, sticky, right? And he doesn't say anything. He, it's, it's, he simply falls on his knees and says, Lord, right? It is a, is a, but his experience seems to be the experience of one human being touching another human being physically. It's a, it's a physical body. We also know that he could eat. Jesus could eat food, right? He made breakfast and ate breakfast with the disciples in John chapter 21. After his resurrection, there's a time they're out fishing and he is on shore and he calls for them and they, they come back and he's created a, he's set up a little barbecue and he's grilling some fish and then they share this meal together. He eats food. We also see in Luke chapter 24 that he could walk and talk, right? He could walk around and talk and he's on the Emmaus road walking with the disciples. These two disciples, they don't know that it's him, which also is telling about what kind of body he had, right? That he could pass as a human being, that they didn't really know that it was different, He's walking with them. He's talking with them. And then he goes and, and shares a meal with them. And then finally, they realize that it's him. And then he, he does something that, that um, I, I don't know if we have another word for it. This word comes from science fiction, but that he could teleport. Luke tw- chapter 24, verse 31. Can we go to that? Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Like, I'd call that teleportation. I don't know. If you want to come up with a more like spiritual word, find it. Okay, but I would call that teleporting. Okay, it's not the only time that he does it. He does it in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, right? This, he make, they make a point, John makes a point to say the doors were locked. The disciples were there. They were locked. They were scared. They had it locked down. This is like safe room time. Lock it down. Jesus came and stood among them. Boom. Jesus came, stood among them. I wasn't trying to snap the uh, verse to the next verse. Um, he came and just stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Right? He, just count, he just shows up in the middle of the room and have a locked room. And that again, I, I would have to say that that's teleportation. That he's just, boom, showing up somewhere else. Okay? So that's something else that his resurrected body can do. And again, Paul's point is, Jesus' resurrected body is a prototype for our resurrected bodies. So, pretty cool. Also, I'm going to say that he could fly. Is that cool? Is that something I can say? Okay, Acts chapter 1, 
9 through 11, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He flew away and he's going to fly back, right? It says lifted up, but like, I don't know, like, again, you see something that's standing on the ground and goes, zoop, you would be like, whoa, he's flying, right? That's, that's how we would call it. Like, might call it a rocket launch, right? He launched, but like he ascended, he went up, he flew, okay? We see this also in the description of when he, he returns. The angels that said he would come back in the same way. Revelation chapter 19, when it talks about his return, it says, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in wine, fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh were written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So again, he comes back on the clouds. He comes back the same way that he did, again, flying. And again, Paul has said Jesus' resurrected body is the prototype for our resurrected bodies. He said this earlier in the passage we looked at last week with Pastor Jason, verses 20 through 23, he's called the first fruits, right? In the, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You don't have to believe that, that Jesus could fly or that we can fly, but like, why not? Like, again, you, you don't have to. It seems kind of boring, and it doesn't really affect anything. But the point being, we will have these incredibly different, glorious bodies. Physical bodies, bodies that can eat, bodies that can talk, move around, do things that our human bodies can do, but better and imperishable. There's none of the breakdown of age. There's none of the, like, none of that, you know, we feel it now of like, you know, probably, there's probably several people in this room who woke up today with like a new pain that, you didn't do anything yesterday. And you just all of a sudden you're like, wow, okay, I've got a new injury. Apparently I sustained it in the night. I don't know how, but like something like that happened. That will not happen anymore. That's part of our perishing bodies. So Paul is answering the Corinthians' questions about the resurrection, right? Their questions seem to center on what kind of body will we have? Right? What, what is the nature of this body? Part of that is related to the fact that the Corinthians were wrestling with an early form of what's called docetism. Uh, it's a belief that Jesus didn't have a physical body. Right? There's, this is an early heresy of the church was to either say that, that, that Jesus 
after he was resurrected, didn't have a physical body anymore, that he was a spirit, um, or that he never had a physical body, right? That he was always some kind of phantasm, or that Jesus there's kind of a duality where they would say, that, well, there was, a, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, an ordinary man, and then the spirit of Christ came upon him, and that was what made him the, the Messiah. And, and so that then that, that's what's resurrected. The body dies. And that came from this belief that, that again, was prevalent heresy in the early church a lot around, centered around the Gnostics and, and those kind of people who, who believed that, that the spiritual world was good and all the physical world was bad, right? So these are these ideas that are swirling around that, that are prevalent and what's causing this heretical version of the resurrection that Paul is correcting in the Corinthians. But that might be different than the questions that we have. And so I wanted to look a little bit more and what the resurrection might be like in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead and who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we see from this passage that the resurrection is not just for believers. All will rise again and stand before the great white throne and be judged. And all are guilty. But notice that there's, there's no like getting out of that. Right? You don't get to this... Because uh, like, some of the questions that arise around these things, and specifically with the, this passage, is you have believers who go like, well, but then, wait, can I... Should I not be, if I'm going to rise again, should I like not get cremated? Because that might be like too hard for God to like put it back together. Like it's too many pieces of the puzzle. Maybe I should stay intact. But we don't, that doesn't make any, any sense from this, right? Because everyone rises again to stand before that judgment throne. No, you don't get out of it because like you got cremated. And like God's like, Oh, forget it. I just let it go. Like, we don't worry about it. No, everyone rises again. He even talks about the fact that the, the sea gives up their dead. Right? Those who are buried at sea come back. Everybody comes back. Everybody's resurrected from all time, right? If you go back far enough, there's plenty of people who have died whose bodies were buried in a casket who the casket and the body is not there anymore, right? It's all decomposed everybody comes back. It's not a problem for God, right? He can create everything by simply speaking it. He can certainly bring back every person in bodily form to be judged at the white throne. That's the part that we should be concerned about, is the fact that we will all be judged. He says very clearly they're going to be judged according to what they have done, and if their names are not found written in the book of life, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. 
That is the final judgment. And that is the difference, right? The, the, everybody's guilty. Everybody there is guilty. The difference is, is your name written in the book of life. And how your name gets written in the book of life is simply by accepting the forgiveness, grace, and mercy that Jesus has offered you by his death and resurrection. That's the part that should be our highest concern is, is our name going to be found written in the book of life? It only gets there by accepting that forgiveness and turning our lives over to him. We'll look lastly here at verses 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The current state of our flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God because our current state is cursed. Our current state is not God's original design. We're perishable. We're fading away. But when we are made new, we will be imperishable. That's what we mean when we talk about eternal life. That we'll be imperishable. We don't have the decay that we have anymore. We see people fighting against this all the time. Or we see people who are just obsessed with the fact that they are perishing. right? And they do everything that they can to make it seem like they're not. Whether it's like, just getting crazy into fitness and trying to stay flexible and young and strong or, you know, just taking and, and just like stretching the skin of the skeleton to try to seem like you're not perishing, right? But you are, and it, it's not working. It's not working. It doesn't matter if you dye your hair. It doesn't matter if you stretch that skin out across your bones to make it look like you're young, you're not, and you're perishing. You're perishing. We all have an expiration date. But in the end, we will be given bodies that do not perish. But not everyone will die. Paul says here that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed that some people will be alive when Jesus returns. That's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, listen, some people will be alive when Jesus returns, and they are not going to die, but they're going to be changed instantaneously. In the same way that people are resurrected with these changed bodies, there will be people who are alive, that when the last trumpet sounds, they will be changed. Two things will happen, right? The dead will be raised imperishable, they, must, they have new bodies constituted for every soul who has died. And while it might be easiest for us to understand how this would happen with a body that is intact and like recently deceased, it's true for everybody. So it doesn't matter if it's somebody who's recently deceased that their body is mostly intact and, 
and that can be changed, or somebody who is decayed long ago and, and, and there's no trace of their body left, they can still be reconstituted. doesn't matter if someone's cremated or buried at sea. We shall all be changed. Those who are alive when Christ returns will be transformed. Like, think like the, uh, the end of like, Beauty and the Beast. You know, they're all like, and transformed. You know what I'm talking about? They have that swirly kind of thing. And they change back into the human form. That's what we see. Everyone will be changed, given these new bodies. And when that transformation happens, Paul points out that Scripture will be fulfilled. He quotes Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, and Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. kind of combines the two to, to make this statement of, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is still evident now. He's saying in the end, that sting will be gone. But now it is evident at every funeral, you find the sting of death because death is there and it hurts. Paul points out that the sting of death is sin because it is sin that has caused us death. Before sin, when God created the world, there was no death. Death came because we rejected Him. Came because we sinned. Because we rejected God's way and chose to go our own way. The power of sin is the law because it is the law that convicts us of our sin. But we can, as Paul does in in verse 57, we can give thanks to God because He has given us victory over our sin. We see here at the end of this chapter that that in verse 57, Paul has really brought us full circle back around to the Gospel. Where he says, "We, we have this victory because of what Jesus did. Because of His death and resurrection, we have this victory. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He gives us victory by defeating Satan's sin and death. And then he goes to verse 58. And verse 58 starts with, uh, therefore. And whenever you're reading Scripture and you find the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is it there for? Because it's always pointing back to the previous verses. And this verse is, is one like many of these that start with therefore, that it really does a good job standing. It seems like it should just stand alone. Like it seems like a great verse. You could just take it, print it on a coffee cup, and sell it at a Christian bookstore. My, my, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. But that that verse seems like like that could get very like legalistic, right? He's telling them like, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, abound in the work of the Lord. Abound in the work of the Lord. I need to like do a lot. I better do a lot because he's telling me I have to be steadfast. I can't waver. I have to be immovable. Like I have to be so solid in my faith and then I have to abound in the work of the Lord. And I I can know that my my labor won't be in vain. But like, I have to do these things and I better get on it. But why did he start this with therefore? Right? This is a concluding statement that he's pointing back to the gospel and saying, because of what we know, because 
our victory has been assured because our names are written in the book of life because Jesus has accomplished these things and because we can look forward to the day when our bodies will be imperishable, when we will live with him forever and we only have that security because of what Jesus has done for us, because of that, we should be motivated to live that way. Because of that, we should be motivated. And that's so often, see Christians get it flipped around and decide like, no, I think that if I like do try my hardest and I do my best and I keep all these rules, like I've even added some to make sure I'm covered, then I can be like, I can earn my own righteousness. And I'm glad I've got Jesus as like a backup plan, but like I'm pretty sure I could do it. And I'm going to try really, try my best to earn it and to look like I'm doing a really, really good job. And then I can earn God's favor on my own. But that's not how the gospel works. It is by grace. And it is only when we understand and know that grace more and understand the forgiveness that we've been given and understand the love that he has given to us that we are motivated to, to love him back and, and to do these things because of the love that we have experienced from him, because of the grace we've experienced. We want to do these things. That's why Paul after giving 57 verses of gospel explanation, tells them, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I'll wrap up with this. Three takeaways for today's message. Number one, believe that Jesus truly rose from the dead. It is critical to the gospel that we believe that truth. Number two, hope in your own resurrection and transformation. Right? That, that can be like a, a powerful thing for us to recognize that someday we will be transformed. Right? As we struggle with all of the things that come with being human, especially the, the, the way our bodies break down, which just increases year by year, knowing that this is not the final body we get can be a huge relief, right? And a huge hope and something to look forward to. The fact that our bodies are breaking down, but we'll one day receive a body that will not break down, that will be perfect, that will be powerful, that will be glorious. And then lastly, allow the gospel to motivate everything that you do. Allow that truth uh, of what Jesus has done for you to be the thing that motivates you to serve him and not to try to earn your own righteousness. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then we're going to take communion together in remembrance of Jesus' broken body and shed blood. Then we'll sing one final song. After that, there'll be a, a prayer team over here. If you'd like prayer for anything, they would love to pray for you. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning that we can read your word and, and, and hear about what it will be like when, when Jesus returns, when we are resurrected. And we long for that day, God. We look forward to that day when everything will be made right, when we will be made imperishable. In the meantime, God, may we be motivated by what you've done for us to proclaim the gospel, to do the work that you've given us to do. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.